On October 31st, 2023, the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, engaged in a, in a, in a memorandum of understanding with the National Labor Relations Board. That memorandum is going to have profound impact upon employers as they experience everyday uh, efforts to comply with the Occupational Safety and Health Act, as well as to comply with investigation efforts by the agency. We're going to talk about that memorandum of understanding and how it impacts employers on this, the December 13th, 2023 episode of the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath. Welcome to the OSHA 3030. I'm an attorney at the law firm Keller and Heckman in Washington, D.C. I've been representing management side in the field of workplace law for 28 years, uh, and and uh, I'm joined today by my colleague and friend Taylor Johnson, also an attorney here at Keller and Heckman. Taylor, thank you for joining the OSHA 3030. It's a pleasure as always, Manish. Well, we have an important topic today, I'd say. Yes, absolutely. Uh, because in the past month, the two agencies, the National Labor Relations Board and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, uh, entered into a memorandum of understanding with each other. It's not the first one between the two, no, but it is important, and it uh, it renews our interest in the areas of overlap between labor, pure labor law and OSHA law. And I think we should discuss first what what we're going to see inside the four corners of that memorandum, and what then we think are some of the implications of that memorandum for our uh, friends in the OSHA 3030 community, the employer community. Yeah, no, I think that's a great idea. Okay. Um, so we'll start with that. We'll, we'll, we'll go into Section 7. Um, there's going to be a lot of talk of Section 7 today of the, of the National Labor Relations Act and then Section 11C um, of the OSH Act. Um, we'll also, you know, so, so we'll talk about these NLRA rights um, and how they apply in the context of safety and health. Um, we'll we'll go into uh, Weingarten rights and whether or not those are going to come into effect here with this MOU. Um, we'll talk about surveillance and confidentiality uh, at work sites and how surveillance for safety, confidentiality of safety investigations, um, you know, how those change now in the context of this MOU. And uh, we'll also talk about unionization efforts. Um, you know, we covered this recently in one of our 3030 episodes about the, the walk around rule, sort of coming back up to the surface here again with this new MOU. And then finally, as always, we'll wrap up with what employers should do, some practical takeaway items for you to bring back to your workplace. That's right. And uh, oftentimes we uh, go off the record afterwards for just the members of the live program. And today this is pre-recorded, so we will be skipping the off the record portion, but we invite all of you in the OSHA 3030 community, if you have questions about this material or any other OSHA law question, feel free to shoot either Taylor or me an email anytime in the month in between this episode and January's episode. We love chatting about OSHA law. And if it's a black letter law question that we can answer off the top of our heads, we're more than happy to to share our thoughts on any questions you might have. Uh, so see if you can stump us. <laughs> so with that said, why don't we get into it? Um, let's talk about the memorandum first, Taylor. I think that the first thing to say is that this is only a month old uh, and that the first 
area of interest to me seems to me to be that the memorandum calls for the two agencies to be able to broadly share information gathered in their own um, activities. So, for example, on the OSHA side, if they're conducting an OSHA investigation, that they, they have under this memorandum of uh, understanding the ability to share anything gathered under their investigatory efforts with the NLRB. Vice versa, if the NLRB uh, learns any information then it would have the opportunity under the MOU to forward that information over to OSHA. Right. Now, I think that's probably the most important thing. And, and we'll get into a little bit more about that sharing of information. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then I think, you know, the next thing would be coordinated investigations and enforcement. Um, so in instances where there are overlapping statutory violations, the MOU says that OSHA and, and NLRB will now be able to coordinate and run a joint investigation together. Probably a narrow set of facts that would um, allow for co coordinated investigations, but yeah. it's important in those instances where that might actually arise. Um, then, then the Memorandum of Understanding calls for reciprocal training, uh, education, and outreach. This is an opportunity for the agencies to train each other's uh, staff. And for the NLRB, importantly for us in the OSHA 3030 community, for the NLRB to be training OSHA compliance officers on what to look out for in order to potentially refer more matters to the NLRB. Of course, it goes in the opposite direction as well. Right. And then lastly, um, so if you're in a state plan state, you're wondering what this might mean for you. Um, the MOU does say, say that the that OSHA and NLRB expect cooperation um, out of those OSHA agencies and state plan states as well. Yeah, that's right. The OSHA Act is unique in the sense that it allows states to carve themselves out from the federal statutory scheme. That doesn't exist in the National Labor Relations Board uh, legal uh, sort of um, jurisprudence. But but because of that, the, the memorandum contemplates the idea that the state plan states that have opted out would um, fully cooperate in the spirit of this memorandum of understanding. Right. All right. So, so let's talk about sharing of information. I think this is important. Yeah, I, I think that this is probably the you know key piece here that we wanted to cover. Um, so with respect to sharing of information, the MOU says that OSHA will provide uh, potential victims of unfair labor practices who have not yet filed a complaint with NLRB uh, with NLRB contact information. Um, if, if they uncover that, you know, there's a potential, um, you know, labor violation during the course of an investigation, they will then provide that employee with sort of a direct pipeline to, to NLRB. Yeah. And Taylor, if the uh, employee files an 11C complaint, this is the whistleblower complaint in, in shorthand, uh, then, then OSHA will process it. And if facts come up, that implicates anything of interest to the National Labor Relations Board, OSHA will forward it on. And if the 11C complaint is untimely, OSHA will advise the complainant that they could still potentially uh, alter their complaint such that it might fit under yeah. the NLRB's sphere of interest or jurisdiction. Yeah, that one really jumped off the page, I think, to me. <laughs> well, I think that the, the other issue that jumped off the page for me, Taylor, was that the NLRB and OSHA can share information with each other that are learned in their respective investigations. Right. What does this mean? Well, it means that when the NLRB is conducting a hearing or conducting an investigation, that it uh, has the opportunity to forward matters to OSHA and that OSHA now has a an alternative pathway to probable cause to conduct an investigation of its own. Right. And I think that that's significant because now it has essentially deputized the entirety of the NLRB's resources uh, to augment the Compliance Safety and Health Officers core of OSHA to consider whether or not uh, facts or circumstances are investigation worthy in the minds of the area directors at OSHA. 
Yeah. The other thing that this implicates is that when OSHA is conducting an investigation, information that's supplied by the employer in good faith in the uh, pursuit of that investigation or in the course of that investigation will now uh, be information that the employer has to contemplate the possibility that that information will find its way to the National Labor Relations Board. Thus, information that the employer may not have considered any objection as meritorious to the provision of data uh, to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration may nevertheless be objectionable on alternative grounds with respect to the National Labor Relations Board. And thus, an employer is now burdened with considering a larger set of objections. This will also have the unintended consequence of frustrating the efforts of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's compliance officers, because information that it would have otherwise more readily obtained may be objectionable on alternative grounds consequent to this memorandum of understanding. Now, I can't at the moment come up with any examples of data that that is objectionable under one scheme, but not under the other, except for the objections that are related to relevance. Now, a larger body of, of issues become relevant that wouldn't have under uh, uh, just an investigation into the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. So, so I think that by broadening the theater, the compliance officer's uh, efforts have now also been potentially frustrated in their ability to rapidly get the information they need. So, so that I think is a really critical point, and it's an impo- important yeah. practice point for employers and their their counsel to consider when uh, furnishing data in response to an investigation request. Of course, all of this is uh, within the understanding that employers should be fully cooperative to all sure. uh, occupational safety and health administration investigations. But it also uh, is uh, offered within the uh, scope of a commonly held understanding that reasonably raised objections are still within the prerogative of employers after all. Yeah. So let's go on. But I think that that's an important point to consider now that they'll be freely sharing information. There's one more point, by the way, before we go on. And that's that, that, that this memorandum of understanding calls for the exchange of information. And when that information is exchanged, each agency may produce it to third parties under the Freedom of Information Act. And that's expressly laid out in the memorandum of understanding. So, so when you look at the Freedom of Information Act and the memorandum of understanding says that if one agency has received information from the other, it must still go through its FOIA analysis before determining whether a uh, datum or document is producible pursuant to a FOIA request. That essentially means that when an employer produces documents under an OSHA investigation, it has to consider the possibility that it will find its way to the National Labor Relations Board Mm -hmm. and that the board may be faced with a FOIA request and that it will have to conduct its own FOIA analysis and potentially produce that document, which was intended for a compliance officer. That's a great point. So now you've got third parties as well in the mix. Right. And again, it uh, raises the question in that instance that should be uh, raised by the employer and the counsel of not only what objections should be filed, but also what uh, confidentiality stipulations should be arrived at first, or what markings the documents should receive and enjoy that designate them as confidential or uh, fitting under one of the uh, enumerated FOIA exemptions. Let's talk about 
Section 11C since we talked about that a moment ago. Yeah, so so we brought that up sort of in the instance of, you know, an untimely 11C complaint uh, can now be something that OSHA, you know, kind of forwards on to NLRB. So you get sort of you know another bite of the apple, um, so to speak. Um, so, so what is 11C? What types of whistleblowing, you know, are, is covered? So 11C in the OSHAC states that employers uh, cannot discharge or discriminate against employees who file an OSHA complaint, uh, cause or initiate a proceeding under the OSHA Act, or testify or otherwise cooperate, you know, speak with, um, you know, an investigator at the site. Right. And an employer, uh, an employee who believes that they have an 11C complaint has 30 days to file that complaint with the secretary, and then it goes through the 11C process, uh, OSHA has administrative law judges that are designated to 11C, and and they actually preside over uh, whistleblower complaints on under 20 other federal laws, 23-ish other federal laws. And uh, this is an important point because the the complaint, the content of that complaint, may implicate an evaluation of whether or not the memorandum of understanding applies, specifically whether or not OSHA, based on the contents of the complaint, should advise the complainant to file a, a complaint instead or in addition mm-hmm. for the board. Right. Um, I think the other important point here is that it's not just protected activity under 11C when an employee raises a complaint about safety or health or participates in an investigation by the administration or testifies, uh, but it also when an employee refuses to engage in uh, conduct or activity that's uh, it, he reasonably or she reasonably believes and in good faith believes to to be a situation that would create imminent grave danger. Right, that's right. And there's a regulation that protects the employee in that instance that they refuse to work if they believe that it's going to be unsafe. You can envision that that type of complaint would also be something that could potentially find its way over you know, to, to, to the NLRB. Yeah, particularly if you look at Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act, which uh, protects employees' um, rights to engage in, in concerted activity. Concerted activity means anytime two or more employees uh, connect with each other on the uh, basis of or on the topic of uh, any any terms or conditions of work. That's right. We've always figured, Manish, that that covers uh, you know two employees discussing uh, unsafe or unhealthful work conditions. Um, what's interesting here in the MOU is you sort of see OSHA and the NLRB um, both opining that that they agree and and that in. It's actually right there in the MOU. It says both the NLRA and the OSH Act protect the right of employees to complain to management about unsafe or unhealthful working conditions. So right there, we see that they're bringing Section 7 to cover those types of conversations. Right. And we take it on faith. That's squarely uh, within the habit of Section 11C sure. that an employee has an unfettered right to to complain to management about what they in good faith believe to be an unsafe or unhealthful working condition without fear of retaliation. However, this now also arguably protects, and and I would have taken the position that it always had, to employees, non-management employees, discussing what they in good faith believe to be unsafe health or uh, safety conditions uh, at the workplace as well. That that arguably, although that may or may not be protected under 11C, would be considered a concerted activity under Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act. Right. Um, So, Section 8A1 of the National Labor Relations Act, and this sort of gets into what employers can't do. Um, So there's a few things here. Um, The first is threaten employees with adverse consequences if they engage in union or other, you know, concerted protected activities. Um, So if the employer is essentially, you know, inhibiting on those uh, Section 7 rights to engage in these concerted activities, um, then that, that would be prohibited conduct under Section 8A1. Right. The bottom line is when it comes to protected rights, 
employers need to be uh, conscientious not to engage in any conduct that could be interpreted or misinterpreted as threatening employees, interrogating them, making promises of benefit, future benefits right. uh, in exchange for taking a non-union position, and surveillance of employees who are engaged in protective, protected activities uh, or surveillance of those protected activities. Um, but the the two that really jump out as being having significant crossover with the Occupational Safety and Health Act area of law are the idea of interrogating employees and uh, conducting surveillance. So let's talk about those for a moment. Uh, when an employee, let's say, let's say there's a, an accident or an incident, safety and health incident, mm -hmm. and a safety and health professional comes to find out more about what are the multiple causes that led to that incident. Right. To the extent that that could be misinterpreted as an uh, interrogation, that is the kind of exchange that that safety and health professional has to conduct themselves very carefully about in order to make sure that they don't run in violation or raise the possibility of an alleged violation of Section 8A1. Right. The same goes for the kinds of uh, instruments that uh, workplaces have set up as a matter of routine for the security of the premises, like surveillance cameras, et cetera, or, or even um, other sorts of monitoring activities mm -hmm. where uh, that could be misunderstood or misalleged to uh, be directed at an infringement of an employee's 8A1 rights to engage in protected activity free from surveillance. Right. So those are those are two issues that I think cross over on Section 881 in the field of safety and health. Absolutely, uh, a lot of accident investigations depend on the kind of camera monitoring or closed circuit monitoring that you'd see as a very ordinary course of business at a lot of workplaces. Yeah, let's go back to questioning employees about incidents or accidents. When when a safety and health professional or a member of management asks employees questions to try and understand the cause or causes of an incident or an accident, uh, theoretically, to the extent that that line of inquiry could result in any disciplinary action for that employee or anyone else, uh, arguably, an employee could invoke a right under Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act to have a union representative present during that interview. Um, that That's an important point that I think the Memorandum of Understanding operates to affect because now if one or the other agency believes that that right to representation might have been ignored or infringed upon, then I think you're going to see a referral to the other agency. Right. And I think this is something that you may not have, as an employer, really had a top of mind in the context of an OSHA investigation. I, I don't think you'd typically be thinking about you know, union representatives. Mm -hmm. and, but now with this MOU, I think that that's something that you need to be aware of. If an employee requests a representative, um, you know, a business agent, a fellow employee, these are often referred to as Weingarten representatives, um, to, to be aware of that, even if it's just the context of an OSHA investigation, that, that right. you know, refusal to grant the employee that request could then directly be funneled to NLRB. And then you've got a whole different you know set of problems. Yeah, that's right. And so jumping ahead to our last section that we always stick in there, what employers should do. I think that employers should advise and train their safety and health staff as well as their plant managers yeah. on wine garden rights. Absolutely. Um, surveillance restrictions, we talked about this a moment ago. The the kinds of closed circuit or video uh, camera monitoring that takes place for a host of issues, including inventory management as well as safety and health, etc. 
um, they they certainly run right up to the boundary of the kinds of surveillance that would be unlawful. This would be examples of lawful surveillance. Unlawful surveillance would involve uh, surveillance that's directed at protected activity under the National Labor Relations Act. So I think it's important when setting up surveillance systems for other legitimate business purposes to make sure that the the bases uh, for the surveillance system are documented and that uh, the design of the system is in conformance with the purposes, stated purposes of the of the system. Right. So, for example, the the employee break room may 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 not have um, surveillance cameras in there yeah. because it doesn't fit within the scope of the stated purpose. Let's say inventory shrinkage or or just uh, workplace safety and health for safety intensive operations like operating heavy machinery. Right. That's right. And then I think, you know, why you're using the surveillance, too, is going to be something, you know, you know we see in, in the context of what employers shouldn't do. We, back to Section 8A1 there, you know, using it to, you know, stifle unionization efforts, things like that. You know, just making sure that there's this balancing test between why you're using it um, and, and that there's a legitimate interest and, and you're not sort of using it to cross over the line into something that would otherwise be, you know, obstructing a protected activity. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. So let's talk about confidentiality uh, where inv accident investigations go are concerned. Uh, it's typical for safety and health professionals in order to preserve the integrity of an investigation to want to sequester the witnesses and not have a lot of chit chat in between uh, their their interviews between witnesses so that you can minimize the risk that maybe two workers try and get a manufactured story uh, coordinated. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, yeah, there's certainly that, you know, desire. Um, and so there's an NLRB decision from 2019 that, that kind of supports this idea, this inclination on behalf of the employer. It says that confidenti confidentiality mandates during the course of workplace investigations are presumptively lawful. Um, you know, it's a case by case analysis, but there's a presumption that those are going to that those are lawful. Yeah, and that's tricky, Taylor, because I think the bottom line is when two employees talk about safety and health mm -hmm. issues at the workplace that I think that they have a right to engage in a discussion about the terms and conditions of work and that safety and health is encompassed in terms and conditions of work. Right. And that would also apply to maybe an accident. That is a subset of the subject, bigger subject of safety and health. Mm -hmm. um, if, however, the National Labor Relations Board's 2019 decision obtains and the National Labor Relations Board is an area of law which is notorious for flip-flopping every few years yep. compared to other areas of law. Yep. But to the extent that the 2019 decision obtains, there is a limited defense for employers who instruct witnesses to maintain confidentiality strictly during the pendency of the interview stage yes. of an investigation. Yes, And that to the extent that it is confined in time and directed in purpose to the integrity of the investigation, that an employer has the possibility of raising a defense that that doesn't per se run uh, afoul of an employee's Section 7 rights mm -hmm. under the Act, yeah. the National Labor Relations Act, to be clear, since we're talking about two here. <laughs> uh, so so that, I think that's that's frankly a very tricky yes. sort of instruction to give to an employee, and it's tricky for uh, companies to expect their safety and health professionals to get just right. So I think it would require a good bit of training sure. and to make sure that uh, that the safety health professionals are comfortable with this instruction and, and are able to implement it. Well, so let's talk about the 
effect of the memorandum on promoting of unionization? Yeah, I mean, this is something that we discussed on a 3030 episode a while back about the about the walk around rule. Um, so there's a, a joint fact sheet that was issued around the same time by NLRB and OSHA. So very recently, um, you know, saying unions can add tremendous value to the health and safety programs, you know, at all stages. Now you have this sort of, you know, collaboration with OSHA and, and NLRB. Um, you know, the walk around rule is, is currently pending. The comment period is closed, but there's certainly a lot of concern, um, you know, a lot that we discussed a lot of that um, on our 3030 about that this could be promoting unionization. I think this is just another sort of step in that direction and certainly something that, you know, employers should be should be aware of. That's right. I think that there's no doubt that uh, some unions have some highly experienced uh, staff in the field of safety and health and that that experience presents value to safety and health programs. Sure. The concern about the walk-around rule is that in non-unionized workplaces, that expert, no matter how much value they have to offer, is not within the scope of uh, what the original language was uh, provided for for OSHA. Mm -hmm. It has to be necessary, absolutely necessary, to bring in a third party. And to the extent that the safety and health compliance officer has the ability to conduct the investigation, that that expertise by a third party union where unionization hasn't occurred at that work site is not does not qualify as necessary. Right. Right. I mean, you're you're bringing a, you know, an, a union rep onto a non-unionized work site. And now you're in talking to an OSHA, you know, compliance officer. You're also essentially talking to a representative from the NLRB. And so it's just bringing that the combination of that, you know, puts the employer in, I think, at least new territory and something that they should be prepared for. That's right. And I don't think it's to the benefit of anybody, including the compliance officer, to um, to cloud the investigation with that kind of complexity. Um, let's talk about what employers should do sure. in light of this memorandum of understanding. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this, I think we've, we've nailed this one throughout the program today, but cross-train your, 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 your safety and health team on section seven, on section seven rights on these sort of NLRA protected activity, concerted activity rights that we've been discussing throughout the program today. Because um, again, when you're talking to an OSHA compliance officer, they're going to be looking for these things. And you could sort of assume that some of these violations that they pick up on could go directly to the NLRB. That's right. And I'll tackle two at once. I think that the other thing employers need to do is go back to their handbooks and go back to their uh, standard operating procedures and look at all of the clauses that have been implicated in recent National Labor Relations Board decisions. For example, confidentiality clauses, standard operating procedures about conducting investigations and the confidentiality instructions that are contained therein. And uh, and then the electronic communications policies. There, there was this newspaper in Seattle, I think, uh, that uh, I th the the claim was that the employer had restricted use of the workplace email and that that was, the allegation was that that was a violation of employees' uh, rights to communicate with each other on terms and conditions of work. Right. Uh, the board agreed. And so here we have another example of a policy that should be reexamined to the extent that employers have legacy policies that are phrased in such ways as to be outdated by that decision. Right, right. That's a great point. Um, so the next one is that investigations focused on safety and health uh, should not encroach on on other terms or, or conditions of work. Um, so again, these investigations, um, when when you're conducting them to make sure, again, that you're not 
prohibiting an otherwise protected activity. Um, you know, that if like we brought up the Weingarten rights, if during the course of one of those investigations, the employee asks for a, you know, a union representative just to make sure that even though you think you're in, you know, safety and health land, that you also need to be aware now of these, you know, NLRB rights. Yeah, the kind of thing an employee might say in response to an internal uh, inquiry might uh, raise other questions, but it's important for uh, the the safety and health professional who's conducting the incident investigation to just stick to the safety and health inquiry and get the facts necessary to understand the causes or causes of an incident or accident and then move forward from there right. and try and try and uh, be disciplined show some base discipline in baseball speak uh, on on confining the investigation to the purpose of the investigation right exactly. Uh, I think the other thing I'd say is it's important to take a look at, uh, to the extent that companies have safety committees that are maybe jointly run by by um, safety and health professionals, management and employees, operators, to to reevaluate the structure and the practices of those safety committees and the composition of those safety committees to make sure that they don't uh, accidentally appear to um, qualify as a employer-dominated um union or uh, other sub, sub kind of committee um, that's there is a, a certainly a distinct sort of analysis that should be applied when safety and health is concerned but again i think the structure the practices of that committee the authorities assigned to the committee yeah. and the composition of the committee will be factors to to consider to evaluate when looking at your current safety committees that's right and then finally, you know, we talked about this one. Remember the Weingarten rights. When, when you're doing a safety investigation that could result in discipline, um, you know, it may affect the employee's right to have to have a representative uh, present. And so to be aware of that and to make sure that you're not, you know, unintentionally or unintentionally denying the employee's, uh, you know, request to have that representative. There. Yeah, that's a really great point, Taylor. And that's the last point for this OSHA 3030. Uh, thank you all for participating. The And this episode, as well as the entire library of 10 years worth of episodes, uh, are stored on our website, khlaw.com OSHA, slash OSHA 3030. That's over 120, maybe 125 episodes. All of them very uh, useful to this day, timely and relevant to this day. So check them out. Um, you'll find us on LinkedIn. If you haven't LinkedIn with us, please send us an invite. I know many of you did the last time I asked, and I've, I've accepted all those, and we're now connected on LinkedIn. So thank you. Make sure that both Taylor and I are connected uh, so that we, we can stay in touch. Uh, the other thing I'd say is this is a podcast as well. So we will be posting this episode and you can get it on your favorite podcast app within a day or so. And it'll be uh, on our website as a video with the slides and the video as well as audio. And uh, that'll be on our website within a day or so as well, um, channeled through YouTube. So you can also just do a search on YouTube and you'll you'll get our program. Make sure to like and rate on podcast or YouTube so that it's more easily searchable by your peers. The other thing I'd say is the next time you get an invitation uh, to the OSHA 3030, as you've heard me say many times before, we'd be very grateful if you'd forward on that invitation to at least three other people within your organization and at other organizations. That is the future of the program. As to the next program, we are going to set up some dates for the year 2024, uh, and we'll announce those in a separate and special email when you get that list of dates, please forward it on to several other people within your organization and at other organizations. And then uh, go ahead and calendar it accordingly. Uh, also subscribe to the podcast so it just drops in to your podcast app automatically and you can catch it on the go. Right. Uh, our sister programs, the Reach 3030 and the Tosca 3030 are also working on their 2024 schedules. If your organization 
is responsible for compliance with Tosca or Reach, stay tuned for emails broadcasting those 2024 dates and for those on once you receive that email as well. Uh, thank you very much to all of you in the OSHA 3030 community for another great calendar year of uh, programming and great content uh, without you in the OSHA 3030 community, community and without you spreading the good word. We wouldn't be able to do this. I want to thank my friend and colleague, Taylor Johnson, for showing up for one more episode out of many uh, we've done together, right? Yes. And everyone here uh, in the staff at Keller and Hackman who do such a great job of supporting bringing this program together every month without miss. Uh, thank you as well. And we look forward to seeing all of you next month on the next OSHA 3030. And until then, stay safe. Mm -hmm.